0: Good morning everyone. Hope you are doing well. We are continuing in our series through the book of Galatians this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians 2 verse 19 and we'll pick up there in a moment. If you tuned in last week, you remember that we talked about justification and unity. And Paul was combating the divisions and sort of racism that was occurring in the church by reminding them of the truth that they were saved by grace as a gift and that they all have equal footing before God. Uh, No class is more important or less important Than any other class. Uh, The law uh, doesn't set the Jews apart as first class. In fact, they stand on the same level ground as the Gentiles in Christ. Uh, But as part of spelling that out, uh, Paul is going to speak powerfully about our relationship to the law itself. The Jews thought that the law really gave them a leg up, uh, spiritually speaking, and so throughout this letter, Paul wants to make it clear that the law has nothing to do with salvation, and that in fact, it has nothing to do with our righteousness before God. Uh, In the verses that we studied last week, Paul said it this way. He said, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. In other words, uh, that's not the right door. Uh, That doesn't give you a leg up. It doesn't make you any better, Uh, which immediately begs the question, well, then what is our relationship to the law? How should I think about it? How should I relate to it? And that was a major source of confusion in the early church in the first century. And in some ways, it is still a source of confusion for us today. Uh, We are going to see what Paul has to say on that subject. Picking up right here in chapter 2, verse 19, he says this, For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. And in a few short sentences, Uh, Paul gives us more to think about than we could possibly unpack this morning. In these few verses, there are some massive concepts that are central to our understanding of grace, and they can be so easy to say and articulate, but much harder to internalize. Uh, But the bottom line of what Paul is saying, in essence, is this. Righteousness cannot be gained through the law. Uh, following the law of the Old Testament, or really any law, uh, any religious code, uh, does not make you righteous in God's sight. And this truth, in isolation, in and of itself, is actually received as bad news for most of humanity. Uh, If you think about how most people live, uh, and certainly how the vast majority live outside of discipleship to Jesus, uh, well, a lot of it is is through the lens of Islam, or Hinduism, or Judaism, uh, or Buddhism, or or one of those major world religions. And one of the things that all of those world religions seem to have in common is that they are merit-based. Uh, your status or your standing before God or before the gods or um, your relationship to uh, nirvana or reincarnation or whatever it is, it's all based on you and your merit. If you do the right things and follow the right laws and check the right boxes, then you make yourself fit for uh, the kingdom of God, or paradise, or nirvana, or a better reincarnation, or whatever it is, depending on your religion or worldview. Uh, But it's all based on merit. Uh, Even in our secular culture, there is this rather intense moral code uh, surrounding uh, personal freedom and accepting others and social justice. And uh, most of the secular uh, sort of moral code uh, is actually based on Scripture uh, as its sort of long-forgotten roots of how we think about right and wrong and even justice in our society. Uh, but there's also a lot of new rules and new concepts that are outside of Scripture or even at odds with biblical teaching. Uh, but the secular default as you're following this moral code, uh, in my experience, sort of the the default mindset is, I I don't think God is there. I'm not sure, I guess, if God is there. But if he exists, he would certainly love my moral code. Uh, because it's good, and it's right, and it's true. So if God does exist, uh, if there is you know, such a thing as heaven, well, then I'm fit to enter. I've sort of earned my way into that place because of how good I am at following my own moral ethic. And Paul's teaching slams against that way of thinking. In fact, in a single verse, he sweeps all of it aside, and he says, righteousness can never be gained through the law. Well, well that's odd. Uh, that, that's challenging. That's counterintuitive, for most human beings. And then Paul drives home the point by saying, hey, if there was a righteousness that could be gained through the law or following a moral code, then Christ died for nothing. If following a, a law or, or moral code could get you into right standing with God, uh, and, then, and then that would be an alternative path. Uh, to the cross and and that's the end of the story that that's the path that we would take to make ourselves righteous before god which then begs the question well wait a second if we have that path available to us then what is christ doing on the cross like why is he there if we can just follow a moral or religious code and, and earn our way there. And no, Paul says, the fact that Christ is on the cross actually speaks to a very different reality and, and a reality in which the law itself plays a very different role than we assumed. A righteousness, Paul is saying, cannot come through the law. Uh, the law in and of itself, it, it can't impart life to you. Uh, the, the law only condemns. Uh, the law is there to, to show us what sin is and, and to point out our need for the cross. It was never presented as an alternative path to the cross. It was never even presented as something you could do as a bonus to sort of add righteousness to what Jesus did at the cross. No, no, no. Paul's saying, hey, get it straight in your minds The law brought death, not life. Uh, And then Paul in Romans 7 lays out uh, this brilliant analogy in which he compares our relationship to the law uh, to uh, that of an overbearing husband. Uh, And this is what he says. This is Romans 7. He says, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Paul says, Uh, Before Christ came, essentially, you were married to the law. Uh, The law had total authority over you, and the law didn't bring life. It couldn't impart life. It couldn't impart righteousness, meaning, in a sense, that that the law was an impotent husband. Uh, it, It couldn't give you life. It couldn't give you righteousness. The law only condemned but it had complete authority over us. Uh, You can sort of picture the law as this uh, obnoxious, oppressive, overbearing husband who is constantly leaning over your shoulder, uh, constantly calling out your flaws, And your faults leaning over saying you shall do this you shall not do that you're doing that wrong that is sin you're falling short you're not good enough you'll never be good enough here's the line and you're failing and you're failing and you're failing you'll never get it right and the worst part is that you can't argue with him when you look at the law you know that he's right There's no sense in arguing that. You know that his standards are actually holy and just and from God. You can't find fault in any of his standards. And so you're left with with no way to justify yourself or your actions. You, you can't talk your way out of it. There's no uh, counter argument that's available to you. You have no defense. His standards are holy and righteous and good, but all the law does is to condemn you and point out your flaws, and he never lifts a finger to help you out along the way. And under this scenario, you might say, well, if that's, if, if that's where I find myself, if that's my relationship to the law, then I'd like to just leave that husband. Uh, but you can't. You're bound to that husband until death do you part, until one of you dies, then you will be released. And to make matters worse, Jesus says, the law will never pass away which means that your overbearing husband will never die. Terry Virgo says it this way. He says, You are permanently married to an overbearing, correct husband who will permanently point out your fault. You cannot argue with him. He's always right. He's never going to help you, and he's never going to die. Ain't religion grand. The law is an overbearing, correct husband who has total authority over us. He tells us what to do and what not to do and condemns us along the way. And that's how we find ourselves. And in fact, some of us still, even as disciples of Jesus, sense this unhealthy marriage or relationship to the law. We, set, we have that sense of condemnation and that sense that there's no way out from under that condemnation. But, Paul says, there's hope. There's a solution. You are married, bound for life to an overbearing husband. The only way out is if one of you dies. And the law, Jesus says, will never pass away. It will never die. So what's the solution, uh, Paul says? Well, the solution, the only way out is if you die. If you die, then you're freed from that marriage to the law. You're, you're released and free to be bound to another. And Paul says that is exactly what has happened in Christ. In the verses we read this morning, he said, through the law, I died to the law interesting. So the law still lives on, but I've died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. I've been put to death and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The glorious solution to our hopeless predicament is that you have died. You, you were crucified with Christ. And as a result, you are freed from your old marriage to the law, and you are freed up to be married to God in Christ. We are finally freed from the old and ready to be bound to a new husband, one who justifies, one who gives life. Which is why Paul says, There is no condemnation, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, condemnation is what you experienced under your old husband, but now you are under a new husband who justifies, who doesn't condemn, and who finally brings life. And, and this death that you experienced was brought about in Christ. We're told that because you've accepted Christ, that the thing you're now found in Him and the things that are true of Jesus are now true of you. Uh, Your old self was literally crucified in Christ as a historical fact. When Adam sinned back in the beginning, we all were in Adam. And we all became sinners. Uh, you were there, wrapped up in Adam, wrapped up in that choice. Now, you don't remember that. Uh, you don't remember being there. You don't remember him making that choice. But you were there in Adam. You were included in that. And the life that you used to live before Jesus is actually proof that you were in Adam. You can't remember being there. You can't prove that to a skeptic, but you were there in Adam. In the same way, Paul's saying, you are now in Christ, which is Paul's like favorite title for someone who's a follower of Jesus. You are in Christ. And when Christ was crucified, you were there. You were crucified with him as a historical on that fateful day as he hung on the cross there was a man crucified on his left there was a man crucified on his right and you were there in christ your old self was crucified which is why paul can say so confidently you are now dead to sin and dead to the law And because you've died to the law, because your old self has been crucified, you are now free. You're no longer bound up in that marriage. And you no longer need to listen to your old husband ever again. And we can so easily get this wrong uh, because I think many of us, have this experience, which was my experience, which is that I was just living completely apart from God, living a, a pagan lifestyle. And I was first introduced to Jesus and and came to this moment of salvation, gave my life to him and recognized my need for him. And it was only after that Uh, that I then became acquainted with the Bible and the law and the Old Testament. And I started growing in my knowledge of all of these things. But my mindset as a new Christian was, well, Jesus has saved me out of the world in this radical act. He saved me from uh, this bad lifestyle that I was living before. Now, surely he saved me so that I can follow the law, so that I can live by all of these um, righteous decrees and directives that I see in Scripture. Um, so that's that's my goal. I've been saved. Now I should be a good moral Christian, and I should follow these rules. Uh, That's what I ought to be doing with my life, is following this law. And and essentially, that's exactly what these new Christians in Galatia in the first century are dealing with. Uh, They were pagan. They're introduced to Jesus first. Uh, They fall in love with Him. They give their lives to Him. They're radically saved by Him. They receive the Holy Spirit as an act of grace. And only after that are they then introduced to the law. And it seems so logical. Well, of course, now I should operate under uh, the law. That must be why it's there. But Paul is saying the law was there to point us to the cross, not the other way around. Too often um, if you if you follow that pathway, you're introduced to Jesus and then introduced to the law and my thinking as a new Christian was, well, Jesus died on the cross uh, to to show us how how bad we were, how much we were in need of saving, how immoral we were, and now that He saved us on the other side we we need to be moral in in, in a sense. We needed the cross to save us, give us a blank slate, and then point us to the law. And Paul is saying it's actually the other way around. The law was there to point out sin and to show our need for the cross. And too often, we actually reverse them. The, the, the law is there to point to the cross. The cross is not there to save us and direct us back to the law. And so without knowing it, uh, many of us are crucified with Christ. We are released from our old marriage to an overbearing husband. We come into this new marriage with Christ who wants to impart life to us. But then we say, I know how I'll impress my new husband I'll get really close with my old husband. Wait, wait what? Like, are, are you serious? Like, that, that doesn't make any sense. It sounds crazy just to say it out loud, but that's what we do. And thousands of years later, we still aren't quite sure what is our relationship to the law. And Paul says, hey, you're not under the law. You're under grace. You have a new husband now. You have a new way of operating. You, you're bound to a life-imparting husband, not the old uh, condemning husband. The old is done away with. And the reality of this um, really hits home in my life because for years, uh, I was following Jesus, but I walked around with this constant sense of condemnation. Uh, I was I was constantly aware. I was operating under the law and, and with that mindset. I, I guess I would say I was sort of under the authority of the law and trying to live up to the standards of the law, even though I knew I had been saved by Jesus. And living in that way... It seems so natural, and in fact, there are lots of churches who actually direct people to live that way. But what happens is that you come under the authority of the law, and you become very susceptible to condemnation. And that voice is always there, accusing, condemning, pointing the finger, kind of stabbing at our conscience, saying, look how you've fallen short look what you've done. Do you remember this sin? Do you remember that sin? And I would actually experience a reoccurring uh, accusation over the exact same sins over and over again. And some of them were um, things that had happened years before. And, And yet there was that almost like daily sort of condemnation reminder, hey, you've fallen short, you've sinned, you've broken this law. And when that would happen, my immediate sort of gut impulse would be to try to justify myself. How do I stop that voice? How do I stop uh, that thing from just uh, poking and tearing at my conscience over and over again? Well, uh, the, the natural impulse is to attempt to justify yourself. So it's to say, hey, what happened really wasn't that bad or I had a really good excuse for doing that, or anyone else under the same circumstances, they would have done the same thing. Totally understandable, excusable. It wasn't that big of a deal. Um, Or you go the other way and say, it was a big deal, but look how far I've come. Look how good I've been doing recently. Look how many stars out of 10 I've had these last few weeks. Look at how good I'm doing at, at following the law now. Look how much further I've progressed. Or out of guilt, we we feel that and we say, I'm going to make up for it by going out and doing good deeds or or serving more in the church or or just getting busy with religious work. Uh, And and when that happens, we, we actually, what we're doing is we're responding to condemnation by pointing to our sanctification. or or how Christ-like we are. I'm going to defend against that condemnation by showing you uh, all my good deeds or how much more I look like Christ or how that really wasn't a big deal. Or we see it all and we say, okay, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do better. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to serve more in the church. I'm going to get busier with religious activity, whatever it is, whatever I can do to erase those nagging voices of condemnation. But the solution to condemnation, which all of us are going to face, the solution to condemnation is not sanctification, but justification. It's actually allowing Jesus to to justify us through the cross, burial, and resurrection, Um, which is why the scriptures say there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And part of me would read that, especially in those years of nagging accusation and condemnation. And I would say, really? Like there's no condemnation? Because I feel pretty condemned. Whether, whether it's from the enemy or from my conscience and, and the law is there and I can see how I don't measure up, I feel condemned. So what does that, what does that mean? Like, am I not in Christ? because I've got condemnation breathing down my neck right now. But it's true. What Paul is saying is true. The solution to condemnation isn't justification. Or, or sorry, it is. Oh gosh. It is justification. It's not sanctification, it's justification. Uh it's it's putting the old behind us. It's saying the old is dead and done away with. We're released From our old husband. Our old husband condemned, we died, we exited that marriage through death, and now we're no longer under that condemnation. We have a new husband. We've been released. And this word that Paul uses for being released from the law uh, is the same word that could be used for um, being released from, say, military duty. Uh, When you are in the military and serving in that capacity, you are under the absolute authority of your commanding officer. Uh, I actually served in the military for years uh, as a military lawyer, Uh, but even though I was going in as a lawyer, I still had to go through boot camp Uh, right there along all the other soldiers' Um, and so it's the same stuff crawling through the mud, the push ups, getting up at four in the morning, getting screamed at. Uh, it's this uh, very intense experience in which you are constantly living in suspense. You're constantly living with this sense of fear. You're constantly being screamed at. You're constantly being reminded uh, that you aren't good enough uh, and and you're being pushed to the limit uh, and, and going beyond even what you think you can do, but it's still not good enough. You're always falling short. You're always doing it wrong. You're always ripe. Uh, to be sort of attacked by a drill sergeant uh, and told that you are ripe for punishment or condemnation. You're constantly on the edge, uh, trying to mind your P's and Q's and stay out of trouble. Uh, And not only that, there's the suspense and fear on the one side, but also they control every aspect of your existence. They tell you when to get up, Uh, They tell you when you can take a shower. They tell you when you can eat and when you can't eat. They tell you when you can go to the bathroom and when to drink water and when to start doing push-ups and when you're allowed to stop doing push-ups and and everything down to minute details. Uh, They absolutely uh, micromanage all of your life. Uh, And after living this way for over three months, it starts to leave this deep impression on you living in that environment but there comes this moment uh, on graduation day when everything changes Uh, at the drop of a hat uh, right as the graduation ceremony ends uh, everything shifts you're done and in a moment of time your drill sergeants go from having absolute authority over you and every aspect of your life and causing you to live in fear and in a moment of time all of their authority is removed. Uh, It it becomes non-existent. Uh, And I actually remember at the end of our ceremony, like it ends and there's this moment where you know, in that moment of time, you're released. And and a few minutes later, uh, I ended up walking up to some of my drill sergeants who had had us living in fear for months. And I remember just sort of casually chatting with them uh, and and everything had shifted. They had no more authority over me. They carried no fear uh, in that moment. Everything had changed in a moment of time, and Paul saying, "That's what happened with you." And. The law. You were released, you died to the law, and as a result of being crucified with Christ, you're dead to your old husband. He no longer has authority over you. So now, when you hear that accusing voice, uh, whether it's the law or your own conscience or Satan or some mix of all of them, and that voice of accusation and condemnation comes, I've slowly and painfully learned over time that my response should not be to point to sanctification or trying to balance out my good deeds with bad deeds or trying to wash away those things by just serving more or getting busy with religious activity. No, my response to those things actually becomes a matter of authority. I can now turn and look the law in the face and say, you no longer have authority over me. You have nothing left to say to me. Whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, and I'm not. Under the law. I've died to the law. I've been released. I've been set free. You have nothing left to say to me. We are dead to our old husband and alive to our new husband. We are released from the authority of the old and bound to Christ who imparts life to us. Uh, Jesus came, in a sense, and paid the bride price he paid this exorbitant cost for us to be able to be uh, married to him in a sense as the bride of Christ and now that you're married to a new husband there's no condemnation you don't have to listen to your old husband anymore and in fact you actually share in the inheritance of the new i mean you can you can think about what happens if you uh, marry into a wealthy family what happens in that case? Well, you become wealthy. Um, You are part of the family. Uh, Just in a moment of time, you inherit and have a right to everything in the family. Your status changes. You relate completely differently to the old husband, and you have this new rich inheritance. Well, is that fair Um, In in our world, when someone just marries into a rich family and instantly inherits all of this stuff, you could argue, oh, that doesn't seem fair. Well, that's grace. You are now married to a new husband. When you have Jesus, you have everything. You have the best inheritance that you could possibly have. And you are married to a husband in which there is no condemnation. There's just grace. You are married to a husband who is bursting with resurrection life and who longs to impart more and more of that life to you a husband in whom if you stick close to him you'll bear fruit romans 7 says you didn't do that under the law you'll receive life you'll receive righteousness you'll bear fruit like you never could under the law and paul's going to argue in this letter in the weeks ahead hey don't go back Don't be enslaved again by the law. Don't try to impress your new husband by growing close with your old husband. Leave that behind. Grow close to your new husband, and you'll experience life and, and grace and, and a breath of fresh air over your soul. You will bear fruit in him like you never could under the law. The law was powerless to give you that stuff, but in Jesus, they are yours. So, brothers and sisters, when condemnation comes, when accusation comes, when the law beckons and tries to call you back under its authority, we stand firm on the truth of Scripture, which says that through the law, you died to the law so that you might live for God. You have been crucified with Christ and you no longer live, but Christ lives In you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the reality, Lord, that we have died to the law, that our entire relationship, which was so unhealthy, which was so dysfunctional, which only brought condemnation. Thank you, Lord. That, that we're released from that uh, because of you, that we have actually been crucified with you, that we've died to the law, and as a result, we're free. Not free to just wander in, out in the desert, Lord, but actually free to be bound to a new husband, one who imparts life, uh, one who imparts uh, grace and righteousness and all of these things that, that our souls just hunger for, Lord. Thank you that, that we are now the bride of Christ, that we've mar- married into this family with, with an incredible inheritance. And so I pray, Lord, uh, specifically uh, over my brothers and sisters who are living with condemnation. And, and that condemnation, Lord, we know it, it just weighs on us. It can have a physical effect and manifestation in our body. That's how real it is when we carry around that condemnation. But would we have courage that today, this hour Uh, this week, this month, Lord, when we hear those voices of accusation and condemnation come, would we be able to face those voices and stand in the truth and the power of your spirit and say, you no longer have authority over me. You have nothing left to say to me. And the truest thing about me is that I am now in Christ. Lord, would you set us free to experience this life that you want to continue imparting to us. Uh, And may we uh, reign in life, as the scriptures say, as we walk in your grace, freed from the law, freed from the power of sin, and and freed to get on with a life-imparting husband in whom we'll bear fruit. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you